Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you so much for good songs. Thank you, Father, that it is a teaching of the Bible. It is truth that there is a blessed assurance that can be in our hearts, in our minds, and even in our consciences, God, that you are a loving Father in heaven to us and that our sins are forgiven. God, thank you for saving us, that we might gather to worship you, and we're here to do just that. Father, we ask now as we turn in your word back to Mark chapter 11 that you would give us eyes to see it and hearts to believe it. Oh God, increase our faith today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, turn in the Bible back to Mark chapter 11. That's where we are. Mark chapter 11, if you didn't bring a Bible, you can use Pew Bible there. It'd be page 932. We started Mark chapter 11 a couple weeks ago. Last week was Mother's Day. So we took a break from it, and now we're back. We're going to look at a few verses, although the next several passages go together, and you're going to see that. They are, they are connected. They are united. Um, but today we're just going to cover a few, verses 12 through 14. Yeah, in page 932 in the Pew Bible, Mark chapter 11, in the, in the bulletin, I, I put a little title on this sermon, The Danger of Acting Like Something That You're Not. It's dangerous, folks, for you to present yourself as something that you're not. It's dangerous for you to pretend Pretend to be better than what you are. It's dangerous for you to act like you know God if, if you don't. It's dangerous for you to claim to represent God if you don't represent him rightly. Many people would call this hypocrisy. Wearing a mask acting like something that we're not. Fakes, phonies. This is dangerous. And whether you've read the Bible or not, I don't know, but I want you to know that the Bible addresses it big time, majorly, hardcore, if you will, that not living rightly for God or pretending to be more than what you are is bad, dangerous. Let me begin by saying, we just sung, have mercy on me, O God. And in that song, it said, God, if, if you were to, to count all of our sins and hold those against us, nobody could stand. That, is a, that song is a direct, direct quote from Psalm 130, verses 4 and 5. If God was to hold any of us accountable to our sins, not a single person here would stand. None of us are good enough to stand before God. But God tells us that instead of us being good enough, Jesus was good enough and Jesus died in our place for our sins. And if any of us would, would cast all of our hope or trust in what Christ has done, so we just sang in Christ alone. You know, if you really start thinking about this, Joe is outstanding at picking the songs and playing the worship service and leading up to the to sermon. Notice that week after week at how these just aren't, did y'all like them or do y'all not like them or does she like them or does he like them? That's not what he's thinking about. He's thinking about, do these songs lead us into hearing the sermon? 
But see, Jesus died for us, and if, and if we will trust in what Jesus did, something totally other and outside of us, get away from you, look to what Christ did on the cross and trust in that, then we will be right with God. And so what that means is the people of God are able to say, confess, and admit every day, continuously, ongoing, we have failed. We fall short. I'm not the standard. We can say that. that. That's our confession. We just sing, God messed up, have mercy on me. God, don't hold me accountable to, to being perfect. That, that's our confession, y'all, because that thrusts our hope on Jesus. When you forget that, that that's the main thing, and you get trapped into thinking you're good enough or self-righteous or that you've earned it or that you're better than somebody else, whatever, then we're already becoming hypocritical. We're already pretending to be something that we're not. Our passage today is an interesting one. Jesus curses a fig tree. What he's getting at here is something that looks like it should have fruit, but doesn't. That's a sermon right there for you, isn't it? A tree that looks like it should have fruit, but it doesn't. Church people that look like they should be bearing fruit for God, but they don't. This is what today's message is about. Before we read, let me tell you this. There are a lot of uh, different responsibilities in, in being a minister, and one of those is I get to do funerals. I've told you all many times it's not a <clears throat> problem to me. I like being a part of funeral services. One of the neat things about being part of funeral service, though, is that we leave the funeral home and we ride to the cemetery, and sometimes I drive if I've got other things to go do after that, and sometimes, though, I won't drive, and I'll just ride with the coach or, or in the hearse, and funeral home worker will be driving the hearse, and so we'll just sit there and talk. You know, for most people, you're kind of worried or freaked out that there's a dead body in the back, but for the funeral home worker, that's his job every day, so he's just sitting there talking, and we're talking about all this. One of the guys that I worked with, and we were driving to the cemetery one time, we were just talking, a little bit younger than me, I'm 37, I think he was like 32, 33, but he was telling me that he does a lot of online dating. So it was a good conversation that we were having, I was curious about it, I wanted to hear more. For the record, I'm not against online dating, I know many people where it's worked out, they found their match, their soulmate, their whatever, they've gotten married, they're happily married, I'm all for it if it works, but I was intrigued by it, so he was telling me about it. And one of the things that he told me, without me even asking, was, man, you wouldn't believe these pictures some of these ladies put up. You see their picture, and you're like, man, she's a home run. This lady is a 10. And then you show up at the restaurant, and she's not quite what the picture was telling. That's what he told me. I started thinking about that. You know, if you had to put yourself out there with one photo trying to find a wife or a husband... I can't imagine how many selfies you would take until you got the perfect one. You got a hundred different filters. I mean, you probably make yourself a little bit more tan, your eyes a little brighter. 
you could go on and on and kind of get this perfect picture. But I started thinking, like, that might help you reel somebody in, but it might backfire on you when you show up at the reservations for two. Right? It's dangerous to make yourself look a whole lot prettier than you really are. They're going to be let down as soon as they see you. That got me thinking, you might post your worst picture. And if they come to dinner after seeing your worst picture, they're going to love it. Wow. She is more beautiful than I even thought she was. And it starts off on good terms. And in so many ways, y'all, there's a danger of acting like something we're not. This is kind of how Christianity is. This is what church life is like. Sometimes we've presented ourselves to those around us like we're better than them. Like our families don't have problems. Like we didn't just really mess up Friday night. Like we never sin. And that's all they see. And that ain't right. On the contrary, we could be more honest about who we are. And perhaps our honesty would show them that we're not even as impressive as they think we are. There's a danger of us acting like something that we're not. Read with me just three verses. Mark chapter 11, verses 12, 13, and 14. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. That's an odd passage, isn't it? And until you've heard your preacher preach on it, or until you've done some further study, you don't really, you don't really understand what it's about. I want to remind you that just the day before, it says the following day there, just the day before, which we saw a couple weeks ago, Jesus had just entered into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, right? The triumphal entry. The triumphal entry lets us know that he has now entered into his final week, the Passion Week, if you will. This is Palm Sunday, and he is headed to the cross. We know now from studying the Gospels that Jesus was seriously intent on dying for the sins of the world. His hour had come. The mission of God was hitting the climax, and it was headed to the cross. We are just literally... Five days away, okay? Five days away from his um, uh, crucifixion. Just five days. Remember, John chapter 13 showed us that Jesus was there and he said, now the time has come to depart out of this world and go back to the Father. And he took up a towel and he washed their feet during the Last Supper. And we know that was the night before he would die. This is getting very, very intense. It's like, it's like his ministry is over. He's entered into Jerusalem and it's go time. 
Time for the Savior of the world to redeem his people. Time for him to do whatever it takes. That was the triumphal entry. Now he's there. Verse 12 says, The following day they came from Bethany. And it gives us something that seems somewhat trivial. He was hungry. We're dead set on big things like dying and where's the opposition and how serious was it? And we've heard of him spitting in his face and plucking his beard and beating him into a bloody pulp. We've heard of them, uh, him going to trial, him uh, against the other guy and them saying, release the other guy, Barabbas, and, and, and he's released and Jesus is now standing there as they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Everybody's against him. That's the heavy stuff you and I are thinking about at this point. But Mark tells us here a little point that he was hungry. My first point for you today that's going to get us to the main point is Jesus is man. It may have been a while since I've said some of these basic doctrinal, foundational points of Scripture. So if you're new here or you haven't been or it's been a while, then I want to remind you that Jesus is man. Jesus is a human. 100% man. We see this here as Mark is telling us he was hungry. This isn't so much a key point of the story uh, it's not like his hunger had much to do with it other than he's going to go f- try to find a fig to eat. Mark is also wanting us to know that he was a man. It's important to understand that Jesus is a man because when he dies, you have to think through how can he die. How was Jesus able to die? So you had to understand that he was a man. And here we see that he was hungry. I want to remind you that the Bible is telling us over and over again that Jesus is a man. See, all over the place, and and it's... Crazy how messy it is, but all over the place you have people in churches and different denominations and in different sects or cults and different religions who have all of these different beliefs about Jesus. Some people say he's God, and some people say he's man, and some people say, well, he's kind of God, and some people say he's kind of man, and some people say he's a little bit of both, and some people say he's totally both, and some people say he's neither, and some people say he's a prophet. You know, Islam is totally all for Jesus. Jesus is in the Quran. You read the Holy Quran, what they call it, the Holy Quran. You read it, and they talk about Jesus in there. He's in there. There's a lot about him. But it's not that he's God, and it's not that he's man, and they don't have a good understanding of who Jesus is. It's not according to the Word of God. It's according to what their prophet Muhammad Muhammad told them. There's all these different random views out there on Jesus, but I want to remind you here today that the Bible is very clear that Jesus is a man. Here, he's hungry. He's on a walk, and he's hungry. I don't know why he was hungry. The Bible tells us many times that he would be up early before sunrise praying. Maybe this was one of those days. Maybe breakfast was served around 7, and he was up at 5 that day, and so he got into praying. Next thing you know, they're on the go, and he missed breakfast. That happens sometimes, right? Sometimes you leave the house so early that you didn't get breakfast. Right, I don't know why he's hungry, but he's telling us that he's hungry, wanting us to know that he was a man. Let me tell you some other ways that he was a man. He was born out of the womb of a sinful, earthly woman. His mother is Mary. Had an awesome mom, great mom, good mom, but she was a human just like any of us, Right? She was a sinner just like every one of us. She was not God and she was not perfect and she was not completely holy and righteous in and of herself. 
That's who he came from. Born out of her womb. He's a man. But let me tell you some others. John chapter 4, verse 6. It's when Jesus was uh, at the well with the Samaritan woman. You remember that? And it tells us that Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, he wore out. He'd been walking a lot. Hot day. Walking in the sun. And he had grown weary. Here he's hungry. There he's weary. Matthew chapter 8, verse 24. Jesus is in the boat with the disciples and a great storm comes. They're terrified, scared for their lives. Where's Jesus? Sleeping down in the boat. He was worn out. He was asleep in the boat. He, he was a man. John eleven thirty five, the shortest verse in the entire Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus was a crier. He cried at times. We have many passages where he cried, but we do have some where he cried. His friend, Lazarus, had died. And there in John chapter 11, he is crying at the tomb. Matthew chapter 4. Very, very beginning of Matthew's gospel after the birth narratives. Jesus has been fasting 40 days in the wilderness. When that ends, it tells us that he was hungry again. Understatement, right? 40 days without eating, now he's hungry But after that, it tells us in Matthew chapter 4 that he was tempted. That he's there and the devil comes up and starts tempting him with things, trying to get him to do this and trying to get him to do that. And he does three times with temptations. Jesus was tempted. We've been tempted. We get hungry. We get tired and need to take a break from our hike. We get sleepy and need to go to sleep. We get upset and we cry. We get hungry, we are humans, and Jesus is a human. He's a man. Mark's telling us this. The book of Hebrews picks up on this idea that he's a man and says this about him. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He's not on some other level and cannot connect with us. He says... But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We have a high priest in Jesus who is truly a high priest, is is who he is, but is also a man and has been there and done that. He's been tempted by the devil. He's been tempted in ways that we've been tempted. And Jesus can relate to us on those things. He was a man. J.C. Ryle says, Expressions like this should teach us Christ's power to sympathize with his believing people on earth. He knows their sorrows by experience. He can be touched with the feeling of their infirmities. He has had experience of a body and its daily wants. He has suffered himself the severe sufferings that the body of man is liable to. He has tasted pain and weakness and weariness and hunger and thirst. When we tell him of these things in our prayers, he knows what we mean. And he is no stranger to our troubles. Surely, listen to this, surely this is just the Savior and friend that poor, aching, groaning human nature requires. When Mark tells us that Jesus was hungry, He means just that, that he was hungry, but he's wanting us to see as we start moving through this passage that we're talking about a man here. Jesus is a man. 
But secondly, you need to know this. Jesus is not only a man or merely a man. Jesus is God. This is what separates Christianity in so many ways. This is what is so absolutely important. If you've never heard this before, then please listen up. He's not 50-50, not 50% man and 50% God. Jesus Christ is 100% man and 100% God. Jesus is God. Now, I want to pause for a second give you a little teaching lesson. This is kind of the way we teach the kids. If I ask you if Jesus is God, the answer is yes. If I ask you, is God Jesus? Now listen up, parents. If I ask you, is God Jesus? The answer is no. Because God is a trinity. Remember? Three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Our kids who have not read the Bible enough to grasp what the Trinity is, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all one God. And we know that that's confusing, but that's what the Bible says, right? That, that's a little bit hard to understand. God is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three different persons that make up one thing, okay? Is Jesus God? Yes. Is God Jesus? Not necessarily. He's Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. And so we don't want to limit, listen to me, we don't want to limit God to being only Jesus. So be careful with that how we talk, okay? Is Jesus God? Yes. Is God Jesus? Not necessarily. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, here in this passage, Mark wants us to see, and I'm going to have to jump around a little bit, but Mark wants us to see that he's also God. This passage ends with the one who is hungry, so he looks like there are some weaknesses to him, right? God should be able to say, I never get hungry. Matter of fact, anytime I even had the first little 1%, 1 ounce little uh, hint of hunger, bam, I satisfy it because I'm God. I can do whatever I want to. And we know that God can do whatever he wants to. We've ar- God can do whatever he wants to. We've already been through 11 chapters in Mark. We've seen miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. If he wants to make somebody stop dead in their tracks, he stops them in their tracks. If he wants to make a blind man see, he makes him see. If he wants to make a man who's never walked a day in his life get up and run and jump for joy, he'll do that. If he wants to make a storm go away, if he wants to feed 25,000 people, he does it. And it's nothing for him. He can do it. So there's something in God that's beautiful that says, I'm hungry, and he doesn't satisfy his hunger. Because there's this awesome mixture in God of totally being God and totally being man. Listen, when other people from weaker teachings and from people who don't really commit to the Bible and people who are from all over the place with different religions or whatever try to explain away how how their religion or their thoughts or beliefs are working for them, I want you to see how far away we are from the truth if we're not centering every single bit of it on the God-man Jesus who is the angel answer to life there is something beautifully huge majestic miraculous glorious awesome in Jesus all of God dwells in Jesus and all of man dwells in Jesus that is fascinating and once you come to know who he is it's always 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 going to be what your heart wants it's amazing so he's hungry And he goes to get something to eat. And verse 14 says that he cursed the tree. Well, I know you've been disappointed before when you've shown up at a restaurant that 
is already closed or you've went to order, make a sandwich in the kitchen only to find out that you're out of bread. And all you could do was be disappointed because you didn't have the power to curse whatever and end its life. So Jesus, who obviously could have said, let there be figs, and there would have been figs. He'd done that before. Jesus is the one who created in the beginning of the Bible. He was there with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the creator of the world. And he could have done that, but he didn't. And so he could have made himself hungry, but he didn't. But he does go and curse the tree. Jump down a little bit, and we'll see this in a couple weeks. Look at verse 21. Sorry, verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Withered away to its roots. It had died the next day. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Peter knew, the disciples knew, Jesus did this. Jesus' word yesterday crushed this tree. I don't know if you've ever tried to kill a tree or a plant before, but even at your best effort, it doesn't happen that quickly. If you take a chainsaw and saw a tree in half and it falls, the next day the leaves will still be green. It takes a while for it to wither up. Jesus, without an axe, says, cursed be you. And the next day, they're like, wow, it's dead. Because he's God. He's God, y'all. He can do whatever he wants to. I said he's fascinating. If he's man, then isn't it so cool how many God things he does? And if he's God, isn't it so cool how many man weaknesses he expresses, demonstrates? Why is he always hungry and tired and sleepy and crying and tempted if he's God? Because he's man. How's he always doing all those miracles? Why does he always come through in the clutch? Why is he always able to do things that blow our minds? Because he's God. That's who we're dealing with. Nobody, anywhere, in any Faith or religion or beliefs has somebody like this. This is God in the flesh. This is God's Son. This is the Lord of the universe. This is the King of glory. This is Jesus. But if you don't believe me that he's God, let's talk a little bit more. Do you remember the triumphal entry, how Jesus introduced that? Hey, guys, come here. Here's what I want y'all to do. I want y'all going ahead and enter into Jerusalem. When you do, you're going to see a donkey there tied up, and somebody's going to come up to you and say, hey, what are you doing? He says, well, we need the donkey. And you say, well, when, when they ask you, what are you doing? You say, we need the donkey. I want you to tell them that Jesus says you need the donkey. They walk into the Jerusalem. They see a donkey. A man walks up and says, what are you doing? All of that happens exactly the way he tells it to happen. Jesus knew exactly how the triumphal entry was going to take place place. Go to the passage before that. Now we're at the end of chapter 10. Do you remember that blind Bartimaeus? Chapter 10, verse 46. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. 
And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up, came to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Jesus wasn't just a good man, and he certainly wasn't a good teacher. No teaching here, right? If somebody was to ask Bartimaeus right there, so why do you follow Jesus? Is it his teachings? Bartimaeus is going to say, nope, never heard a sermon, never been to class, never read a book, no teaching from Jesus. I've never seen in my life, and now my eyes are open. God changed my life. Don't give me this. He's a good teacher. He's the God of all creation, and he changed my life. That was Bartimaeus' testimony. There's all these people out there who love to take some of Jesus' teaching and turn him into a horoscope, if you will, like every once in a while he throws out some good advice. Baloney on that. Changes people's lives. He does whatever he wants. So here he curses a fig tree even though he's hungry. There he predicted what would happen in walking into Jerusalem. Here he heals blind Bartimaeus. If you go back just a little bit more to John chapter 10... Verse 33, now follow along, John chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus told them exactly what was going to happen to him. Go back one chapter, chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Go back another chapter, chapter 8, verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. The Bible teaches us that Jesus' whole purpose was in coming. Jesus shows he knew why he came. He knew the reason that God sent him into the world. He left heaven, came to earth, born of a virgin, lived so that he would die. He was God. He knew the plan. He predicted what would happen, and it happened all the way through. He's God. Jesus is God and Jesus is man. I didn't even plan on this, but today we've got a bulleted insert advertising Vacation Bible School. And every year we're always curious to see what the theme's going to be. And this year's theme is Galactic Surveyors Discovering the God of the Universe. Here's what it says. We will see how our telescopes can become a portal through which we can encounter the amazing and wonderful things designed by a creator who is even bigger than the vastness of his creation. But the most amazing wonder we will discover truly boggles the mind. Look at this next sentence. The God who created everything there is, the knowable and the unknowable, the visible and the invisible, wants a relationship with us. And from the very beginning, God had a plan to restore the relationship that he knew we would break. 
You know what VBS is going to study this year? How that great big God that's creator is also a little human that's a friend of sinners. There's a Bible verse on the bottom, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, that goes hand in hand with these first two points. Talking about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Jesus the man, creator of everything? Yes. Jesus the God, hungry? Yes. That's who we're dealing with. Number one, Jesus is man. Number two, Jesus is God. But lastly, number three, and perhaps very importantly here today, number three, listen to me. Jesus strongly opposes fruitless living. And people don't like it when preachers step on toes So I'm going to do my best today to keep saying that's what Jesus says. Not what I'm saying. That's what Jesus says. Jesus was hungry. He sees in the distance a fig tree in leaf. Notice there that it says in leaf. That's important for you to understand what happens here. So Jesus went on to see if he could find anything on it. So he's like, man, I'm hungry. Oh, there's a fig tree up here. Let me go get it. And he goes up to the tree. When he gets to the tree, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. It wasn't a dead tree at all. It was a healthy, strong tree with lots of leaves. But there were no figs. There were no figs. There was no fruit on a tree. The tree looked like it was good and healthy and great. It looked like there should be fruit all over it. It looked like something that even Jesus thought could satisfy his hunger. Surely there are some figs on that tree. It looks good and healthy. And he gets there and there's no fruit. No fruit. I know there's a lot of questions in your mind about what was that and what did that tree do to him and was it really the tree's fault? It does say there that there, it was not the season for figs. So let me, let me explain a little bit. We don't have too many fig trees around here, but all over the middle, middle East there are fig trees everywhere. And I'm not sure if you've ever even been in a spot to pick fruit off of a tree, but that is something that people used to be able to do, right? Uh, we went to Huber's yesterday and did some strawberry picking, and even as I picked, I ate, and I asked the guy. He said, yeah. He said, we'll just weigh you before you leave. They've got apples there. You can pick apples and you can eat them. And I don't know if you have any fruit trees in your yard. I remember growing up, my dad had a plum tree and we could eat plums right off the tree. When we're in Ecuador, we've picked oranges and uh, lemons and bananas and all of that off the trees and been able to eat it straight from there. One of my favorites in the whole world are avocados. There are avocado trees all over Ecuador. You can just pick them off. They're like $2 here at Kroger. But there you can just pick them off the tree and go right into eating it. It's awesome. Jesus was wanting to get some food from this fig tree, and he goes up to it. There's nothing there, and so he curses it. But let me explain. Fig trees are unique in that before the leaves come, the fruit comes. Okay? 
The fruit comes on the tree first. And then all through harvest, then the leaves catch up to it. And so by the time you're seeing leaves, there's already fruit there. Now, the fig is this, 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 this unique fruit that you can eat it throughout the whole thing, but it's mostly eaten at the end, when it's most ripe, or that's when it's best. But from all the study and research I could find, people eat them all the way through. So when Jesus sees a tree that's got leaves all over it, a tree with leaves is not waiting for the fruit. The fruit should have already been there. When Jesus sees the leaves, he thinks, oh, I can get something to eat. He gets there, and there's no fruit. So what Jesus is doing here has really nothing more to do with the tree. Jesus is teaching a lesson to the religious people. The danger of acting like something that you're not. The danger of looking healthy but not producing fruit. The danger of knowing God and saying that you do but not being fruitful toward God. That's his lesson. To make it even more clear, let me show you. Do y'all see what the next passage is that I'm going to preach on next week? Look what it is. Jesus cleanses the temple. Jesus goes into the temple. He sees that everything's going on there except worship. Jesus is mad about it, and he cleanses the temple and yells at them and runs them out. The temple is for worship. Worship isn't happening. Jesus is upset about it. These people are fake. They're phony. They're hypocrites. They're acting like this is about God, but it is not about God. There's a danger to being about the house of God if you're not there to worship God. A huge danger. And so what he's doing with the fig tree is giving them an illustration that brings this home. J.C. Ryle says that this was a parable in deeds as full of meaning as any of our Lord's parables in words. He didn't explain this one, did he? He just did it. And it speaks to us as boldly as those he taught. But look here, the passage after that. So next week, I'll preach on him cleansing the temple, but the next week after that, so two weeks from today, look what I'm going to be teaching on again. Verse 20. The lesson from the fig tree. Do you see that? What Mark's doing here is he's teaching us the danger of hypocrisy. The cursed tree, the fruitless tree, the cleansing of the temple, the explaining of it. It all goes together. Now, I'm going to preach it to you in three different sermons because I want to make sure we get it. But it could very easily have been preached in one. This passage goes with the next passage and goes with the next passage. This all goes together. This is Jesus. Remember, he he doesn't have his whole ministry left. This is happening on the Monday and Tuesday of his very last week. He's just three days away, four days away from being crucified on the cross. His life on earth is about over. It's about finished. His ministry is over for the most part. This goes together. This is getting at the heart of what all church and Christianity and truth is about. 
Folks, let me remind you that every single bit of what we're supposed to be about is worship. Worship, worship, worship. This fig tree is a worship issue. Fruit in your life is a worship issue. The temple, church, is a worship issue. God created us that we would worship him. You know, so often people are frustrated with Jesus and his teaching that he didn't more often address social issues, right? And people who've lost, listen to me, People who've lost the gospel, lost the truth, people who aren't followers of Jesus, especially those that used to be, but they've moved on past it to now, all they care about are social issues. They're very frustrated by Jesus in the New Testament that it doesn't deal more with social issues. Now, he does deal with social issues, don't get me wrong. And we stand strongly for rights in the right places. But let me remind you that the Bible is crystal clear matter of fact that this is about worship god made you that you would worship him that he would be your a1 100 top dog that jesus would be the king of your life god made you that you would worship him and when we are not worshipers of god we've got a big problem and the message that needs to be told is not do better but repent and get right if you're not a worshiper of jesus you ought to realize that you're wrong you're sinning against him. If you don't realize that your seven-day week is to be worshipped to God, then you're wrong. If you don't realize that your 24 hours a day is to be worshipped to God, then you're wrong. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. We are to be worshippers. Do you remember going back to John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, and that discussion that they had at the well? And she said, well, some people say we're supposed to worship on this mountain. And Jesus said, well, some people say you're supposed to worship on this mountain. And she says, which one is it? And Jesus says, it ain't about worshiping on a mountain. God is seeking true worshipers, he says in John chapter 4. And the true worshipers are those that worship him in spirit and in truth, from the heart according to the truth. That's what God wants, that's what God's seeking, and that's what God is working in the world. And anytime, anywhere, somebody says or acts like they're a worshiper of God, but their heart doesn't worship him, then it is hypocrisy, and it is wrong. And those of us who are just happy to go to church and be something different outside of church need to hear that something that pretends to look like it's fruitful but doesn't have any fruit is in great, great danger. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 23. So to be clear, the reason why Jesus cursed the fig tree is because it was not bearing fruit, but it looked like it should have had fruit. But Jesus isn't out to judge the plants of the world. Jesus was teaching a lesson because he's going to judge the people of the world. And we need to be warned by this. Matthew chapter 23, I'm going to read a lot. Follow along, please. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. Do you see that? 
He says, they may be telling you what the truth is, but they are not living the truth. Let's keep going. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Folks, this was written 2,000 years ago, but it is hitting the nail on the head with people today who say they're religious. Verse 10, neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, buckle up, because I don't know if you've ever seen Jesus become... PG-13 or stick his chest out or get going and going all in on somebody, but he's about to. And God is able to do that when somebody says they're representing God, but they're wrong. So here we go, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven. (coughs) You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Did y'all hear that? He just said, y'all are keeping people from going to heaven. You're not going there and you're keeping other people from going there. Y'all, I'm scared to death reading this. What a warning that we church people who talk about heaven all the time with just saying blessed assurance. We act like we're about God and his kingdom and his heaven. And Jesus is giving a woe here, a warning to people who act like they know about heaven. He says, you're not going and you're keeping people from getting there. Verse 15, he says it again. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Verse 16, woe to you, blind guides, who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath, you blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath, you blind men. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a net and swallowing a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Verse 27, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful. Are y'all looking at this? 
but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Jump down to verse 33. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Some of y'all had no idea that Jesus got that way at times. Now I want to remind you, that's the harshest you'll see Jesus apart from the book of Revelation. What's he so upset about? Murderers and adulterers? What's he so upset about? Thieves and liars? No. He's upset at the people that call themselves his, who aren't really. He's upset at the people whose religious lives are nothing but leaves, no fruit. In Titus chapter 2, verse 15, Paul warns Titus that there are people out there who profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. In John chapter 2, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, right after the first miracle, which was the wedding at Cana, You know what the next passage is? Jesus cleanses the temple. One of the very first things Jesus did in his ministry was go to the temple where worship was and say, stop it. In Mark, is the very, very end of his ministry. His ministry is over. You know what the last thing is he does? Back to the temple. Stop it. Do not fake it. Do not pretend to be something that you're not. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 7 when Jesus said, In talking about who's real and who's not, he says, you will know a tree by its fruit. You've heard that before. J.C. Ryle says, though that tree is withered up and dried up, it's still speaking to us. It didn't bear fruit. Listen to this commentator. Let us take care that we each individually learn the lesson that the fig tree conveys. 
Let us always remember that baptism, church membership, reception of the Lord's Supper, a diligent use of the outward forms of Christianity are not sufficient to save our souls. They are leaves, but nothing but leaves, and without fruit will add to our condemnation. Like the fig leaves of which Adam and Eve made themselves garments, they will not hide the nakedness of our souls from the eye of an all-seeing God. Wow. Do y'all remember that? Adam and Eve were naked and it was all good. They sinned against God and then they were ashamed of their nakedness. So they made something to cover themselves. And God still saw their Sometimes we fake it so much. Sometimes, y'all, I've come to church after just being the worst dad I could possibly be. Sometimes I come to church after just being the worst husband I could possibly be, and y'all don't even know it. But God does. And he sees it. He's not patting me on the back because I keep faking it well and y'all like me. He's not. He's calling me to repentance and warning me of hypocrisy that I would cast all of my hope on the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on. They will not hide the nakedness of our souls from the eye of an all-seeing God or they will not give us boldness when we stand before him at the last day. No, no. We must bear fruit or be lost forever. There must be fruit in our hearts and fruit in our lives, the fruit of repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ and true holiness in our conversation. Without such fruits as these, a profession of Christianity will only seek us lower into hell. Who are we to act like? It's okay to be a whitewashed tomb, to look good on the outside but not on the inside. Who are we to impress people only to be guilty before God? May God warn us of the danger of acting like something that we're not. Our church sits right here in the middle of Fairdale. You can eat at Shack in the back and see our steeple. On a clear day with not many leaves, you can see the steeple from our house on Chieftain Drive. It's hard to imagine anybody that lives in the 40118 that doesn't know First Baptist Church. And if they don't, I just tell them, right beside the funeral home, and they know who we are. wonder what they think about God. wonder if they can't wait to see him. wonder if they know how much he loves them. wonder if they enjoy the fruit that comes off our lives. They're so thankful that we're there. Or I wonder if they want to curse us too. Because there's no fruit. 
Let's be warned today of hypocrisy. And let's repent. I don't normally do this, but before Joe comes up, let's, let's bow our heads. I want to take two minutes right now for you to seek the Lord. If you're a believer in Jesus or think you are, ask him to forgive you. Ask him to have mercy on you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, but you've seen today that Jesus is the God-man who died for your sins, and you don't want to be against him, and you don't want to be a fake for him, you want to be the real thing for him. Would you believe in him today? Father in heaven, I ask that you would have mercy upon your church. That you would purify us from the inside out. That you would convict us of our sins and lead us to forgiveness. God, thank you that you love us and you sent Jesus to die. God, forgive us when we are not very fruitful. Empower us now to live fruitful in this community. That our church would serve the community well. That our church would make families better. That our church would help where help's needed. That our church would provide comfort for those that are hurting and support for those who are in need and encouragement for those who are trying to press on. That our church would be a place and a people, God, that help people find life, that help people far from God come close to God, to help people who are burdened for their sins know that forgiveness is real. That our church would be a church that helps people find you, God. Forgive us. Forgive us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.